0: folks, this is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook, and this is episode 103, a deep dive on dexmedetomidine with Eliana Zimmerman. This episode is coming out on January 21st, 2024. Before we get to the show, I want to remind folks that I'll be speaking in person at the Encore Symposium's Autumn in Bar Harbor in Acadia National Park Conference that's running October 14 to 17 of this year. If you've never been to Maine, this is a great excuse to make it up here. And even if you have been or if you live here in vacation land, there is scarcely a better place to be than Bar Harbor in October. It's absolutely stunning. Peak leaf season usually hits in October for Bar Harbor, which is a coastal village just outside of the entrance to Acadia National Park. Just Google those words, Acadia National Park, October, or peak leaf season, Bar Harbor. (laughs) And then sign up for the conference ASAP because this one usually sells out quick. It's Encore Symposiums Autumn in Bar Harbor in Acadia National Park Conference. And that's running October 14 to 17, 2024. I'm definitely looking forward to bringing some fresh perspectives on what's new in anesthesia, pharmacology, ERAS, airway management, and some other talks uh, for this conference. You'll get to meet a bunch of my friends, too, and crew from Maine Medical Center, as this is one of our team's favorite conferences to attend. It's close to home and has absolutely breathtaking scenery. So I hope to see you there. All right. This is the second episode that I've done specific to dexmedetomidine. You'd have to go back a full 100 episodes, way back to episode number two for the other show, which I did with Matt Poyer, who I continue to work alongside at Maine Medical Center. In this show, Eliana Zimmerman joins me to unpack the literature on perioperative use of dexmedetomidine, specifically focusing on the clinical impacts of dexmedetomidine in colorectal surgery. As part of her doctorate research at Northeastern University, Eliana completed a series of expert panel inquiries synthesized with current literature to arrive at recommendations for best practice concerning the use of dexmedetomidine in colorectal surgery. Her infographic and resources are provided in the show notes to this episode, so be sure to check that out. And on that, just a side note, if you want to get the show notes directly in your email inbox, you can go to anesthesiaguidebook.com and click subscribe. I never sell your info or share your info. The only thing that that's going to do is get you first notice of when a new show launches and all the show notes are going to show up right to your email inbox. So if that's something that you think would be helpful, then uh, click subscribe on anesthesiaguidebook.com. All right, so Eliana Zimmerman graduated Wesleyan University with a degree in neuroscience in 2017 and University of Pennsylvania with a degree in nursing in 2018. She worked as an ICU nurse at Jefferson Methodist Hospital from 2019 to 2022, and she is currently a doctoral student at Northeastern University with an anticipated graduation date of May 2025. In her limited free time, she likes to backpack, run, and spend time outdoors. She'd like you to know that her fiancé, two cats, and her dog have kept her sane during the long days of anesthesia training. And with that, let's get to the show. Well, Eliana, welcome to Anesthesia Guidebook. I'm so glad to talk with you today.
1: I'm so excited to be here.
0: So give us like a 10,000 foot view of (laughs) how you chose this topic for your program at Northeastern.
1: Sure. So my DNP project is talking about using um, dexmedetomidine as an adjunct to general anesthesia in patients with colorectal surgery. Um, And it was a long process for me to figure out what my DNP was about. So I have been very interested in dexmedetomidine for a while. We used it in my ICU a lot for um, general sedation, but more specifically for patients going through alcohol withdrawal or patients with delirium. And I just thought, what an interesting drug that it's working so well in these patient populations. It's providing um, a great deal of comfort to these patients. And as I started to read more about dexmedetomidine, I really began to think this is a drug that we are really just starting to understand what we can do with it. So that's that's where I started. I started reading more about ways researchers were investigating dexmedetomidine and looking at key topics or key themes that kept coming up in research. So the themes I pulled out were inflammation, postoperative nausea and vomiting, and pain. And I think um a lot of us in anesthesia now are starting to see dexmedetomidine is being used in a lot of opioid sparing um pain regimens and it's making its way into the OR in a lot more ways than it used to be used for.
0: Yeah, right. So you so give us a little bit of uh a scope in terms of like what your project entailed and how you approached your project with Northeastern.
1: Sure. So um The overall question that I was trying to answer was, can I use a panel of experts on dexmedetomidine to essentially approve or overview a set of practice considerations about dexmedetomidine in this colorectal surgery population? And I wanted to do this in the most rigorous way that I could do. Bearing in mind that I am a novice researcher, bearing in mind that I'm pretty new to clinical anesthesia, I've only been in the OR for about four months as a junior SRNA. Um, But I wanted to do this in a really rigorous way. So to get there, I began by doing this deep dive into research using a PRISMA-style review of evidence. Um, And I don't wanna talk too much about the exact details of my project, I think that there's, uh, it was a really rigorous and and onerous task (laughs) trying to organize this information. I'm sensing
0: a little PTSD from it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, to say the least. Uh, But what I can do, and I think if John's willing to do, well, resources I used. So if other people are interested in doing a similar design, they have access to those resources. Okay, cool. Uh, So I read a lot of information. I synthesized a lot of information. And I developed a panel of experts. To review this information that I had organized in a relatively concise manner, and let me know if they thought my ideas were were if I was coming up with something that was meaningful.
0: How did you choose colorectal surgery?
1: That is a fantastic question. So this was a lot of help um, from my early advisor, Dr. Daniel King. We So in anesthesia, we talk a lot these days about these enhanced recovery after surgery or ERAS protocols. These are protocols that we have usually designed and reviewed by a huge panel of specialists for specific surgical populations. So they'll look specifically at interventions for colorectal surgery or cardiothoracic surgery. And the whole idea of it is it came from this um, Danish colorectal surgeon, Dr. Heinrich Kellett in the 90s, who basically he was like, We often are taking these small isolated changes and using them in perioperative practice, hoping to produce some small improvement in our patient outcomes. But we don't really know if these small changes are producing a meaningful outcome. So what if instead we take these groups of large, multifaceted, multidisciplinary protocols and integrate those into perioperative outcomes and see if that improves how patients do. And we have found that when we make a large multifaceted amount of changes, we have better patient outcomes. So when I started my research, I was trying to think of the ways sex metatomidine is currently being used. Um, and, and as I mentioned before, these are the pillars of my research, this inflammation, PONV, and pain. And Dr. King suggested that colorectal surgery might be a really good intersection of those outcomes or of those um, sequelae from surgery. And when you think about colorectal surgery, you can think that those patients are really at risk of dysregulated fluid and electrolyte balances, right? They're like coming in, there's something wrong with their bowels, then the surgeons are going in and manipulating their bowels. And these patients will come out of surgery, probably dehydrated, probably with fluid shifts and electrolyte abnormalities, and they're at higher risk for postoperative nausea and vomiting. And if they're feeling nauseous and they've had this huge abdominal surgery, they're probably uncomfortable. And you can see how there's a big intersection of inflammation, PONV, and pain in this population. So Dr. King had suggested maybe use it if you're if your facets of this project are going to be those three pillars, colorectal surgery is a really nice intersection of where those sequela meet.
0: Right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. It and obviously that gives you a huge literature base as well. I think colorectal surgery and ERAS, as you alluded to, have been studied for decades at this point. Uh, so yes. it gives you some some context in terms of the literature. So uh, so let's circle back. I want to ask you a little bit about um, the pharmacology of dexmedetomidine because you you did a deep dive on that, and then maybe touch back on kind of your research question and your approach. We obviously want to get into the practice considerations that you. Uh, throughout to this expert panel and see kind of what you found. And then we should definitely talk about your graphic, your infographic that you developed, which is kind of the the summation and overview of all of this research that you've done and the outcomes from your study. Uh, so we'll, we'll cap off maybe towards the end with that and then go from there. How's that sound?
1: Yeah, that sounds great.
0: And just so, right off, well, right off the bat, in, you said there's no disclosures, right, to to get into?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Great, great question. Um, I have no disclosures aside from what I alluded to before, that I am just a novice researcher um, and I, I am a student nurse anesthetist, so I don't want to pretend like I'm an expert in the field or an expert researcher, but I did take very seriously um, the, the onus to be honest and thorough and discerning when I develop these considerations. And there was 10 expert panelists involved in this uh, process. And I also an, an encouraged and hope that they too would be honest and thorough. So while I did my very best to produce the highest quality of material that I could, I always, um, I love John's, uh, typical disclosure that it, your practice is your practice and the onus is on you to make, decisions on what research is good what is high quality and where you're getting your information from yeah so please maintain your own clinical skepticism your own vigilance so that you can be comfortable and confident in the practice you have
0: it's fantastic and that should that should be said anytime people are consuming you know social media podcasts you know stuff that you read even even journal articles you've got to take stuff into consideration and understand how to read published literature and understand the the power of that. But certainly in terms of social media, uh, we could be sitting here saying whatever we want. And obviously you're making a caveat <laughs> that you're not because you've done a, a ton of work on this project. Uh, and that's also in, in alignment with my goals is to bring people as close to the truth as what we can get at. But people still need to step away from these shows and, and go – you know, test this against the literature according to how you read it and go from there with your own clinical practice. So, so with that said, let's get into the pharmacology of dexmedetomidine.
1: All right. So dexmedetomidine, as we hopefully know, is an alpha-2 adrenergic agonist. Uh, There's three main classes of alpha-2 adrenergic agonists, but um, clonidine and dexmedetomidine, which I think are two of the two that we tend to use in anesthesia practice, are both Amide um, and prior to human research, they were actually first used in veterinary medicine, where veterinarians noticed that they had excellent analgesia and anxiolysis properties in animals. So, clonidine was first developed, but it has lower, uh, a lower, relatively lower affinity for alpha two compared to dexmedetomidine, and it still has a two hundred to one alpha two to alpha one affinity ratio. So it's it's relatively, it does have some vasoactive properties. So pharmacologists were searching to find a medication that had greater affinity for alpha-2, so fewer, uh, lower vasoactive properties, a more hemodynamically stable medication. And that's where dexmedetomidine was made. So compared to clonidine, dexmedetomidine is eight times, uh, has an eight times greater affinity for alpha-2 receptors, meaning it still has some alpha-1 activity, but it has a much higher preference for alpha-2 activity. Generally speaking, there's three different subclasses of alpha two adrenergic receptors: A, B, and C. Um, Dexmedetomidine and clonidine act on both of the primary concentration of those is in the locus ceruleus, which is a nucleus or a cluster of neurons in the central nervous system in the pons. And it's home to one of the highest densities of alpha-2 receptors in the whole body. It's considered a primary noradrenergic nuclei. And so it has really important roles in things like vigilance and pain transmission and modulation. And you can think as an anesthesia provider, those are areas we love to interact with. So administration of medications like dexmedetomidine and uh, and clonidine are going to produce effects like hypnosis, anziolysis, and sedation, because what they end up doing is decreasing transmission of those vigilance signals. There is also the alpha-2 adrenergic B receptors, which are on vascular smooth muscle in the periphery. And that partially explains why we get some of those side effects like um, some of the vasoactive properties we know dexamethasone has. So a little bit of a, a more of a bird's eye view You probably know from your own practice we tend to use dexmedetomidine for sedation, analgesia, and hypnosis. There's actually a new slew of research coming out which I I think is so interesting about emergence delirium. So I think a lot of us think of pediatric emergence delirium and maybe using dexmedetomidine in that population, but there's even even, um, newer research coming out looking at veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder who are at higher risk for emergence delirium and using dexmedetomidine in that population. So I think that's really interesting, um, Then not the topic for today's show, but hopefully someday down the road. Um, we, we also see dexmedetomidine just got FDA approval for agitation and bipolar disorder and schizophrenia.
0: Yeah, that is so, interesting. So let me just ask you a couple questions on that real quick. So yeah. agitation from bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. So are we seeing dexmedetomidine being used more in emergency room settings and clinics?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's um, technically, I think it's for acute agitation in this population. So yes, indeed, it's coming out um, that dexmedetomidine is, is developing this new role in both emergency rooms and these kind of outpatient urgent care environments.
0: And then in terms of PTSD with veterans, did you come across anything? How, how, how deep was your deep dive on that? Did you come across anything in terms of, are, are those being used like in, in conjunction with, uh, like psychiatry visits or outpatient clinics? Or?
1: Oh, fantastic question. This was in an anesthesia environment. So this was interoperative.
0: Okay. Interesting. So there's but some benefit. I haven't,
1: I haven't looked at it. Yeah. I haven't looked at it. Um, kind of in that outpatient environment. I don't know if there's any literature literature there yet.
0: Right. I haven't done that deep dive either you know, to think about, is this something that could be on a menu of options, you know, with ketamine clinics or, or something, something of that, you know, order with, um, whether it's the anesthesia providers who are doing that or in conjunction with uh, folks from the psychology, psychiatry domain. So, but very interesting to see that, you know, there's continued research with this medication.
1: Yeah, that's a really process. I don't know if there's good um, longitudinal data about The effects of dexmedetomidine on PTSD, but I would be so curious to see if anyone's exploring that.
0: Right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about how it works specifically. Some of the pharmacokinetics.
1: Sure. So, speaking in for us in anesthesia, we're using the IV um, dexmedetomidine, and the onset of that is usually about five to ten minutes. It peaks in about fifteen to thirty minutes and lasts anywhere from. 90 minutes, maybe to four hours or so. So you're fairly committed when you're administering it. It's metabolized by the liver and excreted by the kidney. So as we've touched upon before, it's activity in the central nervous system produces sedation with activity in the locus ceruleus, which is that cluster of neurons in the CNS. Um, and alpha-2 adrenergic receptors are G protein coupled, meaning they kind of cause a cascade effect when they're activated. In this case, activation by dexmedetomidine hyperpolarizes the neurons, meaning they're going to fire less frequency, fre- frequently, and we produce the clinical effect of sedation. And something that I also th- found very interesting was unlike our more typical GABA um, receptor agonists like propofol and benzodiazepines, dexmedetomidine is actually producing sleep mimetic activity on EEG. And really, when I think about that, as I had said before, in my ICU, we use dexmedetomidine for ICU delirium. And it really makes me wonder we know that a lack of sleep is related to higher rates of delirium. And it makes me really curious about the relationship of a medication that's producing true sleep emetic activity, decreasing delirium, versus these medications like benzodiazepines, which mimic, make us look like our patients are sleeping, but it seems like the brain activity suggests they're really not in that sleep, uh, sleep mimetic activity.
0: Right, right. Yeah, that is very interesting.
1: Dexmedetomidine also acts to decrease pain transmission. It works in the posterior horn of the spinal cord. And this region of the spinal cord is, um, has a high, uh, high efficacy, in pain transmission using the um, neurotransmitter substance P. So dexmedetomidine in the spinal cord is going to decrease or inhibit the release of substance P, resulting in decreased rates of pain transmission signaling. And then the final kind of key activity of dexmedetomidine is it decreases catecholamine release. Um, It acts on presynaptic membranes in the central nervous system, leading to a decrease in release of norepinephrine. So we know norepinephrine is a is going to cause sympathetic activity. So by decreasing norepinephrine, we get um, responses like a very predictable bradycardia and hypotension, which I think we all know is kind of the hallmark side effect of dexmedetomidine. And this occurs in a dose-dependent fashion. So you know the more you give, the more likely you are to see a um, degree of bradycardia and hypotension. But it's really important to remember that even though it's a, a dexmedetomidine is primarily an alpha-2 agonist, it does still have alpha-1 agonism. So if you were to go ahead and bolus dexmedetomidine, which we don't typically do in our practice, we usually give really small doses like 4 to 8 micrograms at a time or a slow loading dose over 10 minutes. But if you were to bolus it, you can actually initially see that activity on um, the alpha alpha one receptors, which can cause a transient hypertension. Uh, which I don't always think about, since I usually give dexmedetomidine slowly, and I see the bradycardia and the hypotension. But just something to be cognizant of—you get that biphasic reaction.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think the the reactions in terms of bradycardia and what dexmedetomidine is doing to the blood pressure, probably most commonly with hypotension, are big concerns for anesthesia providers. So maybe we can cycle back and touch on that a little bit more when we get into describing the doses that you discussed with the expert panel in your infographic uh, and how to go about administering dexmedetomidine in ways that hopefully prevent significant hypotension and bradycardia.
1: Yeah, excellent. Yeah, that's something I really want to drive home today. Is, okay, great. Is how to safely administer the medication. Yeah, super. Um, and then the last system we we love to talk about in anesthesia is the respiratory system. And one of the great things we know about dexmedetomidine is it really doesn't have a lot of activity in the respiratory um, respiratory system or in the respiratory drive centers of the brain. So it's a medication we tend to think about giving in a population where you really want to preserve that respiratory drive. So I think of patients with a large body habitus or severe COPD those patients, we want to give them every, every iota of respiratory support we can. So dexmedetomidine is a, an excellent agent to think about with those patients.
0: Awesome. So you want to dive into a little bit more on your project and how, how the structure came together with the expert panel and what you came up with in terms of the infographic?
1: Sure. Yeah. So yeah, like I said before, it's really it's hard for me to really summarize my project. It's really, it really took a life of its own. But really, the whole goal was I I wanted to, in a very scientific and rigorous manner, support the idea that dexmedetomidine has potential benefits across probably a lot of surgical populations, but specifically this population, colorectal surgery patients who are at high risks of sequela and problematic,s and, and problems from inflammation and nausea and vomiting and pain. Um, So in order to do this, as I touched on before, I did did a PRISMA-style deep dive reviewing the evidence, pulled out these key articles um, that really provided what I felt like were high-quality studies. So randomized control trials um, were my primary driving source. And then I started reaching out to people who I identified as experts. And these were people that um, I understood to have a good knowledge in clinical practice or theoretical practice of dexmedetomidine. So ultimately, I had a panel of 10 experts, several CRNAs, an MD, and some PharmDs who had insight um, to provide about dexmedetomidine. And the goal of using this expert panel was to do what's called a modified Delphi process. And I will talk a little bit more about this because I had never heard of this before I started my project. So Modified Delphi is a research design where you systematically and quantitatively combine both expert opinion and evidence from my Prisma search to ask this panel of experts to review items and provide feedback on a set of considerations. So uh, I wanted to hear what the experts' thoughts were on the relationship between dexmedetomidine, inflammation, cognitive function, postoperative nausea, and vomiting, and pain. But as Dr. Heinrich, um, as Dr. Heinrich who who created the ERAS protocols, proposed with the advent of ERAS, sometimes making one small change doesn't really make a measurable change in patient outcomes. So I think it's more interesting to do a, to use a combination of articles or combination of methods to de- determine if this kind of amalgamation of theories is going to produce a clinically relevant outcome. So according to the research I had gathered, I wanted my experts to advise if the benefits of administering dexmedetomidine were going to outweigh the risks. And that is something that's really important to me because anytime we give a medication, there's innately some risk that comes with with changing what's happening in the body. And I wanted to know if they thought, is it worthwhile to give dexmetatomidine or is the or is the risk potentially too great? The second question I really wanted to answer was if my experts thought the methodology of producing these guidelines was considered rigorous. And finally, the most important question is, is this even a useful tool? Are anesthesia providers willing to use a tool like this? Is it helpful to them in their practice? And does it potentially add to their practice?
0: Those are all really great questions. And I, I'm looking forward to just getting into the infographic and, and also sharing this with your permission on social media and, and getting it out there for people to like, take a look at.
1: Yeah, I would love that. I would, yeah, that would bring me a great deal of joy to know <laughs> it's actually <laughs> getting used <Yes. laughs> that it's not just sitting in the back closet, getting dusty.
0: <laughs> nice. Anything else that you want us to, to know about in terms of how you structured the uh, research project in, in your approach to this?
1: I'll touch on a a few things quickly. Again, I think um, I don't want to use our time up here to to delve too deep into the methodology, but um, just the the tools I used are both validated. So the first tool I used is the United States Preventive Service Task Force grading system. So the United States Preventive Service Task Force uses this system to help providers determine if an intervention has greater benefit than risk. Um, And then I'll have, um, John will bring that, upload that onto his website so you have access to that information, but that's accessible to the public. The second tool I used was called the Agree 2 tool, which is a validated instrument to help determine if the development of a guideline is rigorous. And so, as I said, it was really near and dear to my heart that I'm not just producing a tool, but something that really um, strove to be really, really rigorous in the process. So the the takeaway, I used my experts to review all of this feedback. I took in their qualitative and quantitative feedback to better the tools I produced. And the take home message here was my experts um, my experts agreed that my process was rigorous. They thought that they gave it a B score for um, the United States. Preventive Service Task Force greeting. And a B-Score says that there is at least moderate benefit or probably, or or at least moderate data to suggest benefit outweighing the risk. So that is to say that it is likely that dexmedetomidine is more likely to provide benefit to our patients than cause harm in this patient population. And finally, most reassuring, my experts did tell me that my tool was useful. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> great relief. <laughs> yes.
0: You got some expert backing on that. So
1: yeah,
0: that's great. Uh, well let's get into, um, so what you found this kind of overview, I know it's kind of weird to talk about an infographic on a, on an audio <laughs> podcast, but, uh, walk us through kind of the, the broad strokes and overview of, of what you hope to communicate through this infographic. And then of course, we'll put this in the show notes of the podcast right on the website. And this will also be, on the social media pages linked to Anesthesia Guidebook.
1: All right, awesome. So I'll start with kind of the nitty-gritty. I'll go over the dosing. So um, I ended up using the dosing recommendations that come on the Presidex, which is the um, trademark name of dexmedetomidine that we tend to use here. And their dosing recommendations, as approved by the FDA, are to administer a loading dose of one microgram per kilogram over 10 minutes, And as we talked about before, the faster you run that, the greater the risk of hemodynamic instability. And then to follow up that loading dose with an infusion of 0.2 to 1.0 micrograms per kilogram per hour. Um, I know in my current practice um, that we are tending to do more off-label usage or more off-label dosing recommendations, but my recommended Guidelines from both the FDA as well as my expert panel are those that I just said. So I won't bore you with the details or get too nitty gritty with how people are using it in their practice, although I'm very interested to hear how you are using it in your practices. Um, But those are the recommendations. And we recommend you start the infusion um, after endotracheal intubation and aim to stop at about 30 minutes prior to the end of the procedure, which we know can be rather difficult to gauge. Remembering that it does have a relatively long duration of action, up to four hours. So there's merit in stopping it a little bit before surgery ends. Um, next up, I do want to touch on safety considerations. Um, there are no true contraindications to dexmedetomidine. I found one case study of a patient who had received like a multi-day infusion of dexmedetomidine in the ICU who developed a rash. Aside from that, aside from the best of my ability to determine other major side effects, that was the only case study I found that suggested that. There's other case studies of patients developing uh, medication-induced fevers in the ICU, but both of those situations seem related to very long exposures to dexmedetomidine that I don't foresee you doing in the intraoperative period. That being said, we know that dexmedetomidine causes bradycardia and we know it causes hypotension. So you sh- hopefully can make the clinical judgment pretty early on that there's some patients where it really probably isn't safe to give. And I think about patients who are coming in with a baseline bradycardia of a heart rate maybe less than 55 beats per minute or 50 beats per minute. Um, as patients get into more advanced age, they're at higher risk of bradycardia, Um Patients that are already coming in with acute cardiac dysfunction probably need that um, heart rate to maintain their hemodynamics. Patients who already have heart blocks, um, the recommendation really is if it's greater than a second-degree heart block, but I would be pretty hesitant to use dexmedetalaminin in someone who has a first-degree heart block as well. And then patients with a New York Heart Association class 3 or 4 heart failure, and I think from there, you can also intuit someone who's already coming in a little bit hypotensive, probably not the ideal patient for this medication. Right. All right. So the first topic we'll talk about um, is inflammation. And I think that this is this is probably my favorite. I'm not supposed to choose favorite children. This is probably my favorite <laughs> child of these topics.
0: <laughs> and it feels it feels like a child after all the effort that you've put in. <laughs> right.
1: So we'll start by talking about ischemia reperfusion injury. To break that down, this is kind of a counterintuitive process where you you have an injurious process following return of blood flow to an area that had been ischemic. So we get ischemia when demand for oxygen exceeds delivery of oxygen. When that happens, we switch our... Um, energy producing mechanisms from aerobic glycolysis, which uses oxygen to anaerobic glycolysis, which is generally less efficient. And it has this horrible side effect of producing lactic acid. As the name implies, lactic acid is an acid. And it causes a local shift in pH to be more acidemic, resulting in negative feedback, which produces um, slower production of energy or ATP. And without adequate ATP, our cells have to switch to these non-ATP dependent pathways trying to maintain homeostasis. And from there, we get a release of calcium through the mitochondria into the cytoplasm. And ultimately, with prolonged periods of ischemia, our cells struggle to maintain homeostasis and they die. And then that sounds pretty bad as is, but when we reperfuse that area, we return adequate blood flow to that area a few things happen which actually lead to an inflammatory cascade. So we get liberation of reactive oxygen species, we get a triggering of the complement system, cytokines, and a lot of other immunologic mediators. And the net effect of this is um, local inflammation, which then can spread to systemic inflammation. So... This, I think this whole process, I find really, really interesting. And I am, again, not an expert in this. And I really don't want to bore you with it. So if you want to geek out, like I like to geek out, you can read this great article. Um, it's a, it's a, actually a chapter in a textbook by Khaled and Fittridge from 2011 called Pathophysiology of Reperfusion Injury. And I will ask John to include that on his webpage as well. But the net takeaway is in these situations where you're having ischemia to a specific area in the body... You get these sequelae um, that lead to apoptosis of cells. You reperfuse the area and that apoptotic process is going to lead to this cascade of inflammation. So in colorectal surgery, we see that this, this ischemic reperfusion injury occurs pretty quickly. We have insufflation of the abdomen, which is decreasing blood flow. We get transient hypotension from us from anesthesia. They may be placing vascular clips, which again will decrease blood flow to these areas. And it takes as little as 15 minutes for these um, for this ischemia to actually result in metabolic changes. So when you think of the colorectal surgeries you've been a part of, you can probably think to yourself that they lasted way longer than 15 minutes. So almost certainly there was going to be some ischemia to this area and that was going to trigger this inflammatory cascade. So very soon after this 15 minutes occurs, we actually begin to see intestinal barrier breakdown. So the lumen, so the um, mucosal walls of the intestines start to break down. They start to undergo ap- apoptosis. And very soon after that, um, especially if inflammatory processes are happening, it's really easy for bacteria to translocate from the inside of the gut to the inside of the blood vessels. And we know that that is a recipe for sepsis. So as I was developing my practice considerations, I was really looking for biomarkers that were going to cue in to signs that there had been intestinal ischemia. And the two markers I found that were relatively specific for intestinal ischemia are diamine oxidase and intestinal fatty acid binding protein. So, diamine oxidase is an endocellular or um, an enzyme from within the cell, which is present in pretty much all tissues in the body, but it has a really specific type that exists in the intestinal, um, intestinal wall. And so when you see increased rates of this serum marker, you have um, it, it pretty directly correlates with the degree of ischemia that's occurring in that part of the bowel. Intestinal fatty acid-binding protein is secreted um, specifically from the small intestine, so it's a pretty good marker for small intestinal injury. And um, I favored studies that tended to use serum markers of diamine oxidase and intestinal fatty acid-binding protein because those indicated that there was some degree of intestinal damage. A lot of studies look at more familiar markers like interleukins 4 and 6 or C-reactive protein. Those are markers that I was more familiar with in my practice. And those tell us that there is some inflammation happening in the body, but they're not very specific. They exist pretty much everywhere. So diamine oxidase and intestinal fatty acid binding protein are really, uh, I should say, they're relatively specific markers um, just for intestinal injury. So to recap, we have diamine oxidase and intestinal fatty acid binding protein, which are both relatively specific to gastrointestinal inflammation. We also looked—I also looked at studies that looked at interleukin four and six, tumor necrosis factor, and those are more general indicators of systemic inflammation. So we have that background, and of course, the question is, why are we talking about this with dexmedetomidine? So we have a lot of articles coming out now that shows dexmedetaminin improves both serum and clinical markers of inflammation. So I'll start by talking about the serum markers. Dexmedetaminin is suggested uh, to have protective effects against ischemia reperfusion injury by promoting homeostasis, modulating autophagy, decreasing catecholamine release, and um, it seems to also decrease levels of interleukin-6 as well as tuber necrosis factor alpha. So some of the key articles I used in developing my practice considerations specifically looked at non-emergent colorectal surgery. And um, I want to highlight here that I wanted to look at um, non-emergent colorectal surgery because in an emergent population, there's a lot of other confounding variables happening. Those patients might already be septic. Inflammatory cascades may already be um, kind of rolling out and causing general mayhem. So non-emergent colorectal surgery felt a little bit more like a controlled population. These studies measured serum inflammatory markers like diamine oxidase and intestinal fatty acid binding protein, and across um, pretty much categorically showed that there was lower serum levels of these markers, both at post-op hour zero and 24 hours out. So unfortunately, my studies didn't tend to look much further than that. But I did think it was a really good measure of what we're seeing immediately postoperatively. Dex, patients who received dexmedetomidine did have lower rates of serum inflammatory markers.
0: And so, so just to jump in there, that's the that's the independent variable was whether or not they got a dexmedetomidine infusion.
1: Correct. That's a great question. Yes, all other variables held constant. Dexmedetomidine was the only thing we changed.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. And were those decreased levels of inflammatory markers considered to be clinically relevant?
1: That is a fantastic question. So I think kind of the tricky question here is uh, what is clinically relevant? What does that mean? So, I cannot completely answer that question, but what we did pull out was um, this really interesting subset of articles that looked at postoperative delirium and postoperative cognitive dysfunction as clinical markers of inflammation. Um, This, again, this is really, really my favorite topic. Um, So, I did, before we kind of delve into the clinical outcome implications of this. I just want to touch on the difference between post-operative delirium and post-operative cognitive dysfunction. Uh, I think we often kind of um, uh, put those two outcomes together, but they are a little bit different. So they both have um, post-operative delirium and post-operative cognitive dis- dysfunction have a lot of overlap in their clinical presentations, their pathogenesis, and their risk factors. So both um, both include alterations from baseline mentation. But post-operative delirium is a lot more like attention deficit, agitation, confusion, whereas post-operative cognitive dysfunction is, is has this hallmark clinical change from cognitive function. So in delirium, you're getting this attention deficit and agitation. In post-operative cognitive function, it's a true loss of co- cognitive function in patients. Both, um, the pathologies of both aren't entirely understood, but inflammation really is heavily implicated as the underlying cause or at least playing a major role in development of both of those processes. And aside from that, postoperative delirium occurs much closer to surgery. It's usually diagnosed within the first 24 to 72 hours after surgery, where and it usually resolves within a week. Whereas postoperative cognitive dysfunction, it, it um, tends to occur starting maybe seven days out. And it can last a really long time. Like we're talking weeks to months. And sometimes there's been concern that patients never really fully recover mm-hmm. uh, their full cognitive function. Um, things correlated with these, we our risk factors for these are a lot of things you'd probably kind of suspect like history de- of delirium or underlying depression, sleep deprivation, alcohol misuse. Um, post-operative cognitive dysfunction is also linked with history of strokes Alcohol misuse again, and lower educational level, and a key uh, key risk factor across both of these is age. I think age is probably the number one risk factor, um, at least for postoperative cognitive dysfunction.
0: I think just to jump in here, th- uh, this is also a fascinating topic for me, and I think this is, w- which is why one reason why I'm so glad that we're talking about this in the context of dexmedetomidine administration. And then specifically dosing considerations around that for this subset of, of surgical patients. because so I think that what we're really talking about is the art of anesthesia and that, that it's based on some really core science and, and even emerging, emerging science, but it's not just about, you know, a blunt tool. Like I, like I'm, I'm thinking about the classic cartoon of like the cavemen and, you know, the caveman surgeon's like, let me introduce you to your anesthesiologist. And there's some guy carrying a big rock, right? He's going to like <laughs> knock out the patient. We're not talking about like blunt tools of anesthesia. The goal is not just to like put people to sleep, get them through the surgery, wake them up, job is done, go home, right? Like the art of anesthesia comes in when we understand that the way we do things can have a really significant impact on outcomes for patients and that postoperative cognitive dysfunction is a really significant outcome for patients. So I'm glad we're talking about this. I'm glad we're highlighting that. And, um, I think you've got a little bit more to say about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, I love that point. Thank you for, for saying that. I think we think so, so often in just the immediate perioperative period, But imagine coming home from surgery and never regaining full cognitive function. That's a horrible outcome for surgery. That is not what we want. Yeah, it's devastating. Exactly. Um, So here's here's the meat and potatoes. So there is this, the research relating to gut microbiome has become a really hot topic in research. I feel like we're seeing studies come out about the relationship of how bodies um, absorb nutrition. And we're seeing new linkage between the gut microbiota and mental health um, and psychiatric disorders. And there's even this new connection we're seeing of disruption of gut microbiome being associated with poor neuro- neurocognitive outcomes, such as post-operative cognitive dysfunction and delirium. And I'm going to say that again, because I think this is so, so fascinating. When we disrupt the gut microbiome, we have higher rates of post-operative cognitive dysfunction. There is some relationship between the gut, the microbiota of the gut, and the brain, and we are just starting to elucidate that. So as we talked about a little bit earlier, manipulation of the bowels actually innately leads to inflammation, and that inflammation very easily can become systemic. So there was a really great article by Brenner et al. from 2021 that looks at this link between the gut microbiome, the gut microbiome and both visceral, which is kind of the diffuse organ-related pain, as well as somatic pain, which is a more intense like muscle bone tissue pain. It's easier to localize. Previously, we'd really thought that manipulating the bowels just leads to visceral pain, but there's this new evidence coming out to say it's so much more than that, that patients aren't just experiencing that visceral organ pain, but they're also having some, some impact on their perception of somatic pain that, um, that manipulation of the bowels can really lead to systemic pain syndromes. So these pathways are typically thought to be mediated by both autonomic innervation from the vagus nerve and the enteric nervous system, which is another branch of the autonomic. So one of my very, very favorite articles that I was looking at in my um Practice Considerations is this amazing article by Zeng et al. And if I could have made a randomized control trial, this is the one I would have wanted to make. So...
0: (laughs) Spoken like a true nerd.
1: (laughs) So what they did was they looked at both... Serum markers for brain inflammation, which is uh, the markers they looked at were S100 beta, which is specific for brain damage, and neuron-specific enolase, which is a neuronal cytoplastic enzyme. So it's um, showing us that there's some rupture of the neuronal membranes. So they looked at these brain-specific serum markers in the blood suggesting that there was some brain damage at the same time they did mini mental status exams. And the uh, mini mental status exam or MMSE is um, pretty commonly used to measure post-operative cognitive dysfunction. So at specific time intervals, they did a blood sample and they looked at the um, elevated levels of brain damage markers at the same time they did exams clinical exams for uh, post-operative cognitive dysfunction. And they found in groups that had received dexmedetomidine intraoperatively versus groups that did not, that categorically at every time interval, their serum markers of brain damage were lower and their... their degree of post-operative cognitive dysfunction was also lower. So, receiving intraoperative dexmedetomidine in this beautiful study suggested that both inflammatory and both um, brain damage markers, as well as clinical markers of postoperative cognitive dysfunction,
0: were lower. Boom! That's amazing. Yeah. And that's Zhang et al. 2019. So, link to that's going to be in the show notes.
1: Yes, yeah, I, I thought that was a phenomenal article. Yeah, um, and this was actually in concurrence with a few other studies I looked at that just looked at mini mental status exams or just looked at CR markers. But I love this study because it looked at both at the same time intervals. That's amazing. Another, yeah, I, I just thought that was so fascinating. Um, and then another one, other study showed that dexmedetomidine intraoperative dexmedetomidine was shown to have lower cerebral oxygen metabolism in elderly colorectal surgery patients. And this is so important because if you're trying to avoid ischemia in the brain, lowering the amount of oxygen that is being um, extracted from the blood provides a greater buffer between demand and supply of oxygen. So you're less likely to have ischemia in patients who have these lower metabolic rates in their brain.
0: That's very interesting. So what else do you want to say on dexmedetomidine?
1: So that was that was kind of rounding out our inflammatory pathway. So we'll, um now we'll we'll move on to pain, which we in anesthesia know and love so well. Um, I think we have all talked about staying ahead of the pain, especially in the perioperative period. We think that starting pain management in the pre-op period has much better outcomes on our postoperative pain scores. And I think a lot of the new research is we're trying to move a little bit away away from opioids, is pursuing these multimodal analgesic approaches. So aside from what is obviously a very unpleasant experience to experience pain, pain poses a big barrier to surgical recovery, especially with colorectal surgery patients. You have a patient who's undergoing this abdominal procedure one of the things we want them first to do so early on is get up and start moving to help that gut recover, to help uh, promote gut motility. And a patient who's in pain is not the one who's going to be amenable to that. When the physical therapist comes by and says, time to get up, time to get out of bed, they're the ones that are saying, no, I am so uncomfortable, I can't move. And what that's going to do is decrease our gut motility. And maybe, maybe we then reach for opioids to help them with their pain. And we know that opioids, their activity across pretty much all of op- all the opioid receptors leads to a decrease in gut motility. And opioids prolong gastric emptying. They have anti-secretory effects throughout the whole GI system. And the net effect of this is a GI system that does not want to propel forward. And you know what else? Actually, a pop- in, a, in populations who are at high risk of postoperative cognitive dysfunction, opioids have been shown to slow cognitive recovery even further. So this is kind of this endless, horrible feedback loop of not moving, more opioids, worse um, cognitive recovery. Across a lot of surgical populations, dexmedetomidine has begun to make its way into a lot of the U.S. protocols and part of these multimodal opioid-sparing or opioid-minimizing analgesic management um, systems. So I want to know, as far as I can discern, there isn't really like a universal recommendation for how you should create a multimodal analgesic regimen, but it does seem like a lot of these ERAS protocols across surgical populations are really advocating to minimize opioids whenever possible. Um, and several of these protocols have started um, directly saying dexmedetomidine and maybe clonidine as, as well um, can really be helpful in, in trying to mitigate the use of opioids. So as I, was developed, as I was developing my practice considerations, there wasn't overwhelming evidence that specifically in the colorectal surgery population that dexmedetomidine decreases opioids. However, when you look at um, across patient populations, when you look at using dexmedetomidine in the PACU, patients tend to have decreased consumption of opioids. So... Uh, we see in these meta analyses coming out that dexmetataminine does contribute to lower total perioperative administration of opioids, and it actually improves patients when they self score their own pain postoperatively. So, again, to reiterate specifically in colorectal surgery patients, the literature isn't strongly suggesting that dexmetataminine decreases opioid consumption. But um this was one of those times when I really wanted my experts to weigh in. Does the benefit, potential benefit of administering dexmedatominine outweigh the risk? So the literature doesn't strongly suggest dexmedatominine decreases pain scores. But across other surgical populations, the literature is much stronger. And probably more importantly to me is highlighting that dexmedetomidine never worsened pain scores and it never increased opioid administration. So maybe the data isn't strong to say that it helps in colorectal surgery populations, but there's no evidence that it it makes things worse in pain scores.
0: I think that's a fair comment. I think it is interesting to look at some of the other surgical types in to see an opioid-sparing effect strongly evident in the literature, even though that hasn't been borne out in colorectal surgery. Uh, But obviously, we just got off inflammation and talking about some very real data in terms of dexmedetomidine's benefits, in terms of reducing uh, inflammatory markers in the surgical population. So, so, yeah, I think, you know, no loss in terms of being able to run a dexmedetomidine infusion, uh, but possibly not a lot of gain in terms of post-operative pain control specifically.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that will move us along to our next topic, which is post-operative nausea and vomiting or PONV. Again, another hot topic in anesthesia Uh, PONV is integral to pretty much our daily care plans. We talk about it about every single patient at this point. It's mentioned in pretty much every ERAS protocol from the ERAS Society. We know patients undergoing laparoscopic procedures, abdominal procedures, any bowel manipulating procedures have a higher risk than an average patient at um, developing PONV. And very unsurprising, PONV is associated with with patient dissatisfaction, um, there is one one particular article that found that some patients will pref- say that they pr- prefer to have more pain than to have PONV. That is the degree of patient dissatisfaction we have when patients wake up nauseous.
0: Yeah, it's a big <laughs> and one. And I like it's,
1: that's it's, understandable.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a terrible thing to experience. And I've also seen one study that showed that it was the number one fear of patients oh. having surgery was being nauseous on the back side of things. So I think anesthesia providers have the potential to have a really big role in mitigating this side effect for patients.
1: Definitely. And aside from innately it being an uncomfortable process, there is some patients that really can't tolerate some of the risks that come with vomiting. When you think about vomiting, it's a really acute alteration in this autonomic um, response, and it can lead to really sudden changes in heart rate and blood pressure. And if a patient goes on to to vomit, there is also this huge increase in intraabdominal pressures, um, which in some patients really is not safe. So, this is one of those times when we don't really know the mechanism or it's not entirely understood. But there's a few theories that I thought were pretty valid in explaining how dexmedetomidine might decrease PONV. So, of course, we've talked about um, dexmedetomidine and potentially decreasing opioid administration. We know that opioids are one of the big risk factors in the APFEL scoring system for risk of PONV. We also know that dexmedetomidine blocks some sympathetic activity. It decreases catecholamine release, and maybe that has a role in decreasing the vomiting reflex as well. We also know that dexmedetomidine decreases MAC of inhaled anesthetics. So maybe by administering it intraoperatively, you're running a lower uh, volatile gas and you're going to decrease the rate of PONV anyways. So it's it's kind of unclear what the exact mechanism it mechanism is, but I think you can kind of logically think about it, okay? Less opioids, maybe less volatile anesthetic, it makes sense that we might just have lower rates of PONV when you give dexmedetomidine. Right. So again, this like um, like the research on pain and dexmedetomidine in colorectal surgery, I can't say that the Um, statistical analyses were stupendously significant, but they didn't show that dexmedetaminin increased rates of PONV. So this was one of those times when I really appreciated having my expert panel look at this research and say, um, maybe the data isn't very strong at this point in time. Maybe we need greater meta-analyses looking into this specifically but it seems like the benefit of running dexmedetomidine still outweighs the risk, at least enough to to give it a moderate um,
0: scoring. Right. Yeah, that seems to make sense. Um, again, I think you know, data is emerging on dexmedetomidine. And, and I don't think we're here today just so listeners understand. We're not trying to necessarily make a case for dexmedetomidine. But as you said early on in the show, just to represent what the facts are. And so we're seeing some pretty favorable outcomes in other types of surgery, pretty favorable outcomes in terms of colorectal surgery with decreased inflammatory markers. And then, you know, maybe not as strong as correlation with decreased pain and decreased postoperative nausea, vomiting, but as a useful tool in a multimodal approach to sedation and analgesia, uh, you know, intraoperatively, I think dexmedetomidine is a pretty significant tool to understand. So I am glad that we are talking about it today.
1: Yeah, excellent. Yeah, and then uh, the final, the final take-home message really um, for this colorectal surgery population is one of their greatest, most important milestones to getting discharged home is return of gut motility. So postoperative ileus, which is this temporary impairment of bowel function after surgery can cause um, just abdominal distension, increased rates of nausea and vomiting, and delay passage of stool. And in a lot of these patients, the surgeons don't want to let them go home until we know that their bowels have at least returned to some functionality. So post postoperative alias can be caused by several things. It can be neurogenic, which would be a sympathetic stimulation which inhibits gut motility. It can be related to inflammation. So we talk about that mechanical manipulation of the bowels during colorectal surgery, actually decreases gut motility. Pharmacologic, again, we're looking at opioids. And it can also be related to immobility. And as you hopefully have kind of gleaned away by now, dexmedetomidine potentially improves all four of those things. We know it decreases norepinephrine release and maybe thus it's going to impact neurogenic causes of postoperative ileus. We, we suspect that it decreases serum inflammatory markers we we often see that it decreases the amount of opioids we need to administer intraoperatively and postoperatively, and we know that pain control is paramount to encouraging those patients to get up and moving again and get that gut back to working. So generally speaking, the studies I looked at with dexmedetomidine and. Um, looking at how long the patients stayed in the PACU, how long they stayed in the hospital when they got to go home. Generally speaking, there is a suggestion that administration of dexmedetomidine, especially in patients at risk of needing to be in the hospital for prolonged periods, generally speaking, it decreased the duration of stay. So these patients tended to get to go home a little bit earlier, be it a few hours or in some cases, even a few days earlier. Um, especially in a patient who develops postoperative ileus, that can really prolong duration of hospitalization. Patients might need to stay in the hospital for several days longer, and in really severe cases, they may end up back in the OR if they need surgical intervention. So I think any medication that potentially um, improves gut motility and can and reduce the risk of postoperative ileus probably, um, probably has a good place in colorectal surgery.
0: Right, right. Well, anything else uh, in terms of the deep dive that you want to cover before we round out the show.
1: No, I think I touched on everything I really wanted to talk about.
0: Okay. So just to review briefly, so you put a, you summarized a lot of this information into a very clean, easy to understand, quick, uh, infographic in which you hone in on the patient population, colorectal surgery. You talk about the potential intraoperative benefits, the short-term benefits, the long-term benefits, looking at, uh, You know, decreased opioid consumption, it's sleep memetic, early return of gut motility, decreased delirium inflammatory markers and decreased post-op nausea, vomiting, and then long-term benefits of possible decreased uh, post-operative cognitive dysfunction. You went through patients that it could have the most benefit with, some safety considerations, which you touched on earlier in the show. And you also talk about, uh, in a brief overview with some, with some nice photos, uh, the, the mechanisms of action of dexmedetomidine, where it's working in the body, how it's influencing the brain, the gut brain access, inflammatory markers, all of that is in this, uh, infographic. And then probably maybe most significantly for folks, you review the recommended dosing for dexmedetomidine in the inf- infographic. So... If you're listening to the show and you want to have a quick visual recap of all of the details uh, that we've talked about today, definitely, you know, hop on the website, hop on social media, check out this infographic because it's all there in a very concise, easy to read format.
1: Thank you. Um, I guess <laughs> the last thing I do want to talk about is just to to kind of recap the message that John and I wanted to relay to you early on. And that is to... Um, to highlight the safety message behind any medication and specifically dexmedetomidine, So I don't know of any true contraindications to dexmedetomidine, And if any of the listeners do, I'd really appreciate hearing that and making sure we can highlight those. But it's always imperative to mention the risks of administering any medication. So at the end of the day, you are the anesthesia provider and you are the one determining if administering any medication is right for your specific patient. We should always be tailoring our care plans to what is best for that specific patient. So one of the nice things about dexmedetomidine is its side effects are pretty predictable. It's probably going to cause a drop in heart rate and it's probably going to ultimately cause a drop in blood pressure. And like we said earlier on, you do need to remember it does have alpha-1 agonism too so it can cause this biphasic uh, blood pressure response where you get this initial potential increase in hypertension. And a lot of the times, I feel like I don't see that in my clinical practice, but we almost certainly will get a longer, more gentle uh, drop in blood pressure. And in some patients, that will put them into an area of hypertension. But we know that these are the side effects, and we know that this tends to be dose-dependent. So, in your clinical decision making um, practice, it's important for you to think about that if you choose to administer this with your patients. And I think I mentioned all of the more specific um, side effects and patient populations to maybe be more cautious in. So, I won't reiterate that now. Right. Uh, Fortunately, if you do have a patient who you are worried is having um, too much bradycardia or too much hypotension, they're maybe a little more hemodynamically unstable than you'd hoped. Um, first and foremost, you would just stop the infusion. And most of the time, that's all you really need to do. It will take a little bit of time to wear off. As we discussed, its peak action is about 15 to 30 minutes in. Um, and if you really need to give something, usually glycopyrrolate or ephedrine will be enough to bring up the heart rate or with ephedrine, you get um, both the heart rate and blood pressure increase. If it's really, really bad, if you're really um, having a patient who's severely bradycardic, and they are not stable, you then would reach for atropine. Um, and if you think that hypovolemia may be playing a role, you can always administer fluids. But again, usually all you need to do is just stop your infusion and give a little bit of time or perhaps a little bit of ephedrine.
0: Yeah, there's a great, that's a great thing to sound off on in terms of what to do when you are seeing some of these intraoperative side effects from dexmedetomidine, and very practical things that are likely gonna give you a, a pretty immediate response. And help you, you know, fly the patient a little bit more smoothly. So, well, Eliana, capping off on this, do you plan to publish your findings?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I think I am I am in the throes of the <laughs> clinical right now. So,
0: <laughs> Going to take a break my, for my, a minute? My
1: focus has been that, yeah. And, and maybe someday I'll, um, if I feel a little bit peppier and more energetic once again, maybe when I see the light of graduation, maybe I'll circle back to that. that um,
0: I but been the time... I think okay. that's, I think that's fair that, you know, that's, that's actually what we did with the paper that kicked off the podcast way back in the day. We wrote it during school and then we launched the podcast while we were in school. And then, uh, it was, uh, we had the same vibe. Like we had no energy in the last you know <laughs> year of the program to like revise a paper. Publication was not required. We had to write the paper. We had to, we had to publish the podcast but writing and submitting for a professional journal publication was not part of our requirements. So, But it is something that I circle back to after graduating because I felt like, you know, we had done 95% of the work and I just needed to clean it up. It actually took a little bit more work than I probably anticipated. I, I cleaned, it, cleaned <laughs> it up, submitted it, got a slew of feedback and then like a whole nother round of work. And then, you know, it ultimately ended up getting... Uh, accepted for publication in the AANA journal. So it is something, you know, tuck it in the back of your mind. I know right now, like <laughs> you're focused on just getting through clinical and churning through a graduation dates of what you had said was May of 2025. So you still got a, a ways to go with clinical, uh, but yeah, tuck it in your back pocket and it could be something that you come back to down the road.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, we'll definitely get the infographic out there for folks because I think I think it is a useful tool. I think it's something that's very clean. It hits a lot of the core information that you have presented in this podcast. And I guess to sound off, I just want to ask you a couple questions on the process. So, what was what was most surprising for you during this process of the deep dive? You know, whether it's stuff from the expert panel, stuff uh, working through with Northeastern, but what did you find most surprising? Or maybe it's just clinical information that you found that was surprising.
1: Um, so that's a wonderful question. I, I think I was surprised by where I ended up with my project, uh, which is probably kind of a silly thing to say. I, I really, um, Dr. King did a really wonderful job of kind of reeling me back in as I was going down all these rabbit holes and deep dives and thinking my project might like look like this or like that. Um, so I was, I was, I, colorectal surgery was not the population I had anticipated, um, honing in on. Um, and then I think I was really excited to learn about sort of these more fringe uses of dexmedetomidine, like this emergence delirium in, uh, um, patients with PTSD, right. um, and then to learn about the veterinary medicine, I just, I kind of enjoyed oh, right. just like letting my brain wander.
0: <laughs> we didn't even talk about that. That could be a whole other show. <laughs> the times that my dogs have gone under anesthesia, they've gotten a mix of ketamine and dexmedetomidine and there's a reversal agent in vet medicine for dexmedetomidine.
1: Is there really? Wow. That's so interesting. Yeah. I wonder if that will make its way to through FDA approval someday.
0: Oh, it would be, I mean, right. I, I was going to say it would be stellar if it did, but- but I don't know. You'd have to look at the studies and figure out, you know, um, does it pull people out of sedation? Does it take away the benefits that, you know, we're realizing from dexmedetomidine? um, whether it's a smoother emergence, decreased postoperative cognitive dysfunction, improved inflammatory markers. Does it take away the sedation and leave the benefits? Does it take away the benefits with the sedation? I don't know. So my dogs still come out pretty wonky though. <laughs> 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 reversal or no reversal. Their eyes are like rolling around and they're walking sideways <laughs> and slobbering. So uh maybe they just needed, you know, more reversal. Who knows? Um what just for the other uh graduate students out there working through their DMP projects, what was most frustrating to you about this process?
1: Oh, another great question. I think sort of as you alluded to as well when you went to go publish your paper, it just nothing took as long as I thought it was going to take in a bad way. Like everything took like 30% more time than I wanted it to. Yeah. That's fair. Um, and it, yeah. And it was like, I wanted to enjoy the process as much as I could, but not being able to really gauge what I needed to give. It was really challenging for me.
0: Right. Right. I feel like so often projects like that are nebulous and that you've got a great idea, but it's a bit of a journey. You don't really know where it's going to end and you don't, know, you know, there's, there's variables that are beyond your control. You know, what your project chair feels is sufficient, what questions they pose to you, how they want to redirect things. So you often don't know how a project that is this massive and complex is going to turn out. But uh, I think that is why you want to pick something that you are really interested in, because you're going to spend a lot of time reading and thinking about it and writing about it. So If you at least have that baseline interest, it can give you some motivation to to see it through to the end.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that is really good advice. And I think other really good advice I received kind of on that same note is just trying to choose a project that will be feasible. And clearly that was something I struggled with uh, Mm -hmm. because I I underwent a lot of work. Um, But yeah, trying to envision what the final product will be really helps know how to drive the ship as you're trying to get there.
0: Right. Well, and I, and on that note though, I do commend you for, for following through to the point of wanting to do a show about this. Cause for a lot of the folks that I partner with to do episodes on their projects, the episode is part of their project. The episode mm-hmm. is part of their dissemination or their launch or their publication of the project. It's, it's part of how they get it out. You know, some universities require you to speak at a conference or do a poster presentation or publish a paper Uh, And universities recently have been realizing, I think, the power and benefit of social media and, and podcasts. And so they've allowed that to be a dissemination platform for many DMP projects. But this is not that for you. This is purely you just wanting to (laughs) <laughs> uh, to keep talking about dexmedetomidine, but no, you, you, you reached out in the early stages of your project and we talked about, you know, uh, the expert panel phase and, and some of the, you know, I've, I've got a previous show on dexmedetomidine. And so we talked a little bit about that, but yeah, coming on here today though, I commend you on that, that, um, you found this to be interesting enough that you wanted to share it. And, uh, you coming on here is, is not part of, you know, any requirement or, or phase of your project. So nice job on that. Uh, and then the last question I've got for you on, on all of this is, um, how has this project changed your practice? Uh,
1: also an excellent question. Um, so as I had mentioned, I'm pretty new into the clinical environment, but it makes me think about reaching for dexmedetomidine. I think more than I, or I guess advocate for using it more than I think I would feel comfortable if I wasn't so familiar with it. Right. And yeah, I think I'm I'm trying to use it more. I think I really like it when we're doing multimodal analgesic. Like I all I will almost in, invariably reach for dexmedetomidine if we're going for a really like true multimodal approach for a super painful procedure for someone who's maybe more opioid tolerant. Um, it, it's the medication I always want to have in my pocket for that. And I think more from a curiosity standpoint, I kind of like in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, hopefully fingers crossed that this is also helping with things that I don't think I can measure like PONV. Like I don't think me as Eliana, I'll ever really know if my use of dexmedetomidine mm. in my personal practice is affecting that. But I, I like to think it might. Um, and I, it kind of encourages me to incorporate it more.
0: Right, right. I do think that knowledge is power. And the more that I have read about opioid sparing techniques and just more about the science of anesthesia, even after school, it has helped me develop the art of anesthesia. So uh, again, knowledge is power. And I think the more we understand the medications that are at our disposal, the better we're able to shape, you know, the potion making and the concoctions that we do behind the drapes in order to hopefully set our patients up with some really good positive outcomes that are based not just on, you know, what we think are our opinions, but are in true evidence in, in the science. So, uh, so thank you so much. Thank you for going on a deep dive with dexmedetomidine and being willing to come on and share that today on the podcast.
1: Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for humoring me and and listening to a lot of my geeking out over (laughs) my pleasure in reading this literature and learning more about it.
0: (laughs) Pleasure reading. That's what they call anesthesia school. (laughs) Uh, Well, anything else that you want to say before we sound off?
1: No, I think that's all I have for you.
0: Okay. Well, Eliana, thank you so much. And uh, I wish you the, the best as you wrap up the rest of your clinical training.
1: Thank you. It was such a pleasure talking to you.
0: What up, y'all? I wanted to drop a reminder that if you're a CRNA looking for a great team to invest yourself in your career in, check us out at Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine. While the clinical opportunities would challenge you and the location is one of the best, our people and sense of community are truly what set us apart. Reach out if you want to learn more.